0: Every now and then, an Australian looks wistfully out across the seas. They see opportunities, important knowledge that might be missing here, but knowledge they cannot reach on their own. Well, this podcast is about how some extraordinary people have found a way to cross those oceans, to gather gems and bring them back to Australia. People who embark on a Churchill Fellowship, to learn globally, but then to come home to inspire locally. I'm Adam Spencer, and this is the Churchill Collective. Today, we travel to the other side to explore a topic that most often goes undiscussed.
1: What I find when people gather to wash and dress the dead is that there's a bond in that room between those people that actually doesn't go away. There's this shared experience and those bonds continue.
0: That's right. Today, we meet a person who's devoting her life to finding new and better ways to treat the dead and to confront loss. So a warning. Some may find this discussion, well, a little disturbing.
1: There were two jobs that I applied for that I was totally unqualified for. Everything else was in my wheelhouse. But the two jobs, one was to be a prison guard at a detention centre and the other one was in the funeral industry. And I actually got both jobs.
0: That's the voice of Rebecca Lyons, who, having worked in the finance and real estate sectors, found herself, as many of us do, looking for a new career. So she chose a job in the funeral industry. It was there she began a new journey, helping clients through some of their most difficult times and arranging and conducting funerals. But Rebecca felt unsettled. What's become our cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approach to funerals just didn't seem right.
1: I discovered, and I'm still to this day floored by the amount of people that walk through the door of a funeral home in their 50s and 60s and go, no-one ever has ever died before. We don't know what to do. Mm. How does this work? What are our choices? And we've made the industry such that you get a limited set of choices back. So from the moment someone dies, you're on someone else's time frame. You ring the funeral home and they will come, usually within about two hours. They will take the person away. You'll be told when they can have an appointment with you to arrange the funeral. You'll be told when the chapel is available and you might get a choice of celebrant. You'll get a choice of coffin, flowers, cup of tea, three pieces of music, see you at three o'clock on Friday. And you're, from the time of death, you're on someone else's time frame the whole way along. And so I looked at this and I looked at what that meant for people who were coming back in, you know, to collect ashes weeks later and what those few weeks had been like for them. And I just got to the point where I thought we could do things better.
0: So how did you lead from having those observations, those feelings, to a Churchill Fellowship?
1: Well, I was talking to a dear friend of mine who is one of the most intelligent, beautiful women I know. And I was lamenting all of this to her about how I didn't think we were doing the best to serve people's grief and bereavement outcomes. And I was starting to see these things happen overseas and be really fascinated by what was going on. And she reached over and she said, dear, you need a Churchill Fellowship. And I went, A what? (laughs) What? No one's going to, what? What is that? (laughs) Um, And she explained what it was and she said, go along to their road show and just check it out. And so that's what I did.
0: It's interesting because what you're passionate about is not top of mind, traditional part of the Australian funeral industry way of thinking about things. There are some topics where if you want to go on a a church or fellowship, it's probably pretty obvious where you should go and who you should meet up with. That, That itinerary almost creates itself. Where did you go and why? How did you work out where you wanted to go? What was at top of mind when you were exploring the whole concept of death and grief and that journey worldwide?
1: Well, not content to do things in the easiest form.
0: (laughs) I actually (laughs) Why am I not surprised?
1: No. I pitched a project that was in two parts. So I didn't have one focus. I looked at the relationship to death and ceremony, but through alternative body disposal technologies, so that was one focus, and then community and family-based approaches to death and dying. So I kind of had two prongs to what I wanted to do because they marry so beautifully. Like people who approach death and dying, a ritual ceremony, people who approach those things differently will often look for, for example, Better ecological outcomes for body disposal. So the two things were related but different. And so I looked at both of those categories and went, what's happening around the world and what's the biggest bang for the buck, basically? Because the Eastern world has some beautiful death traditions and they've been connected with death for centuries, where the Western world has lost that connection. And so I focused very much on things that were directly relatable to the Australian experience, because the real core purpose of a church hill is that you bring back knowledge that will
0: better the Australian experience. So Rebecca put together an itinerary in which she'd experienced death practices in parts of Europe and North America. She studied how funerals are conducted from the Czech Republic to Mexico, where death becomes part of the community's story.
1: So in Mexico they have this process where when the person dies they go and ring the church bell and everyone knows together there are elders in the community that are trained in the prayers for the dead and so they come and over the next day or two the whole community is with the family and the body of the person who's died in that space. Some people go and dig a grave They do a a procession and carry them to the church. They then carry them to the burial ground and do the burial. And then they have these beautiful things where like nine days after the death, they all get together and do the procession and have a ceremony again. And then 40 days after that, they get together and have a procession and do the ceremony in the church. And then, of course, they have the Dias de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead celebrations every year as well, where the ancestors visit. And so... They have these beautiful things built into their social system. When you've gathered to wash and dress the body of someone who is dead, there's this shared experience and those bonds continue.
0: There are so many things we could talk about here. We've only got limited time. I want to ask you quickly about washing and dressing a body and I want to talk about environmental body disposal as well. So when you've met families in Australia who want to wash and dress the body. And I've never before this conversation heard of it even happening, but the way you describe it, it makes so much sense. What sort of families reach out and ask for that? Do they tend to know it about it in advance? Do you propose it as an option and they decide to come around? What do you experience in that space, Rebecca?
1: It's a little bit of both, but I think people come to home funerals and family-led funeral care three ways. One of three ways. One is financial. I mean, funeral poverty is a real thing. And People are starting to make financial choices rather than emotional ones when it comes to funerals simply because they can't afford a ten dollars or $12,000 price tag. So people start looking for financial alternatives. People come to it out of bad experience. So they, you know, no industry is perfect. And so they will have a bad experience and go, we don't want that again. Let's look at what else is out there. And then people come to it, I kind of liken it to, you know, being a reformed smoker or something, which I am. Mm. But, you know, people have these experiences and then they want to tell everyone about it because it's so incredible. So I think they're the three ways people find themselves in the space of, you know, considering doing things a little more themselves.
0: And that's where an end-of-life doula comes in. You see, Rebecca now works as a doula, spelled D-O-U-L-A. But it's an ancient concept. A doula engages with a family to ensure the end of a loved one's life is handled the way they want. And that may mean a complete departure from our accepted funeral norms. We'll go into that a little bit later. Traditionally, a doula is a non-medical person who comes into the death process from the very start. They can coordinate the palliative care process. They can ease a family's journey towards inevitable grief. And then they handle the funeral arrangements in whatever form they may take. I guess you could think about it as a sort of concierge to the grieving.
1: The word doula is an ancient Greek word and traditionally it means woman of service and they were the women that ushered people in and out of life. An end-of-life doula is a non-medical support to a person who is dying, their family and their community. They come into a situation sometimes at the very start at the diagnosis of a terminal or a life-limiting illness. And they can stay in that journey or dip in and out of it as the family and the person require over however long that journey is going to take. And they can coordinate the care of someone. They can provide respite and vigil. They can do legacy work with people. They can do really practical and logical things. So there's research out of the Western Sydney University that says it takes a team of about 16 people to care for someone who's dying at home. And that team of 16 people could be everyone from the doctor, the people who are coming daily to do showering, you know, your occupational therapist or your exercise physiologist and then your friends like who's going to collect the mail, make the meals, do the transport. So a doula goes, how do we coordinate those 16 people and keep them all on the same page? How do they all communicate with each other and and How does everyone know what's happened if they haven't been there the day before? So, you know, there's many facets to what a doula can do in that space, but the key is that their role is non-medical. I'm a little bit unique in that I'm also a funeral director.
0: So now we come to the pointy end of this whole business. What happens to the body? And in this episode, I've been introduced to a whole new idea. That is washing and dressing a dead loved one something I've never really thought about before. What I have thought about, though, and it's never made sense to me, is the idea of dumping a very expensive, ornate, wooden casket into the ground, never to be seen again. So I asked Rebecca about the new and interesting methods of body disposal, methods that she learned about on her fellowship and how she's now introducing them into her practice. Methods that include composting a body or dissolving it through alkaline hydrolysis.
1: Alkaline hydrolysis is a process where the body is reduced to a pre-DNA water level, so it's reduced to liquid. All the proteins in the body are broken up. The body goes into a chamber. The chamber is made up of 95% water, 5% alkali, and the movement of that water over a period of, you know, two to three hours will actually reduce everything protein-based in the body. So what comes out is this beautiful absolutely stunning white bone and anything foreign like pacemakers or artificial knees or things like that. That water in in the gold standard version of alkaline hydrolysis, that water is then treated, the pH is treated down below 9.5 and then that water gets released into the water cycle just like your grey water from your washing machine and then the bones can be reduced to a, a powder which is the ash Same as flame cremation, they're ground into the ash and then given back to families. Human composting is where you turn the body into a soil-like material over about six weeks to eight weeks. The body goes into a vessel on a bed of wood chips and alfalfa and all of the things in that vessel is sealed. It is heat controlled. There's water added to it over time and there's movement in that as well. And then over a period of, in one version, over a period of about 30 days, everything that's protein-based in the body is reduced to this soil material it cures for about two to three weeks. And then it can be taken home and put on your garden, essentially. Any bone matter that's left is ground up, same as in everything else, and foreign objects removed. But then it's about a cubic yard of soil you get back. But that's designed for places where you can't do natural burial. So originally that was called the Urban Death Project when they were doing the R&D because it was about what are you doing spaces where there isn't space for natural burial? Because natural burial is still the single best thing you can do with your body on the planet.
0: And I saw in your report the, the Capsula Mundi, the Brazilian design, sort of like a burial Egg for your ashes. I saw solidified remains. So the body being reduced to sort of three little oval discs that looked almost like a beautiful pottery display or something. Is that something that many people do?
1: Yeah, so solidified remains is not far off opening in Australia, I'm told. But the idea of solidified remains is that you take already cremated remains. So you take ashes, you put them through a ceramic process and you get back about 40-odd stones. Those stones can be, you know, painted, engraved, set on altars, given to grandchildren, mates, distributed between friends and family, and they are completely sterile, but they are the remains of your person.
0: All of this, of course, challenges our conventional notions of burial. And why not? But what's been the response from the community and industry professionals? Rebecca says it's not been easy for those with a financial interest in the status quo to accept the idea of home funerals. But she says she's empowering the community by taking a lot of the expense out of the process.
1: There's not a lot of ways the mainstream industry can step into home funeral without turning it into a premium product and making it unaffordable. And that sort of disempowers the community where what I'm talking about is giving back to the community and empowering them to do for themselves. So that's a bit of a challenging thing to negotiate at times. And some funeral directors have embraced it and others have gone, well, you know, we don't know how to make money out of that, so (laughs) no, thank you. But the natural burial is taking off. And it's because it's simple. It's because you don't need all the bells and whistles. You just wrap a body in a shroud and lower them into a shallow-depth grave. You know, it's really simple and it's really natural. You don't need chemical preparations of the body. You don't need any of the stitching and packing that happens in the industry. You don't need the big, heavy coffins with plastic lining. You don't need a concrete vault under the ground, which, you know, if you bury in a plastic-lined hardwood coffin in a concrete vault under the ground, all you're really doing is creating human soup. You know, natural burial is about putting all of the nutrients in the body back into the earth, into those aerobic layers of the soil. And the community response to those things has been absolutely embracing because the community just look at the models of natural burial and home funeral and go, actually, this makes so much sense.
0: The census data in Australia, Rebecca, suggests we live in increasingly non-religious times. More people identify now as having no religion and and rising significantly over the last 20 years in Australia. Does that mean as the community, if it continues to head in that direction, are we more likely to consider the sort of forms of burial you're talking about? Do people of more religious connection tend to stick to the traditional ways or is there no association really between your religious beliefs and the sort of death and disposal methods you might embrace?
1: I think they're very separate. I mean, we've done home funerals with people who have had a very traditional Catholic mass for their person. And, you know, the son of the deceased put mum on pile carpet in the back of the ute and drove her to the church. So we've done natural burial that's been religious and natural burial that isn't. You can have these things and do these things and they will support whatever religious or spiritual or cultural beliefs that you have.
0: I can't think of anything more Australian than someone putting mum's body on the back of a shagpole carpet in the ute and driving her to the local church. But that just, I mean, if the ceremony was still beautiful and if it was what mum wanted and what the family were comfortable with, while some people might bristle at that image, why not do that if that's the way you want to embrace the journey?
1: This is the thing. And the whole purpose of this is reclaiming. This is a community reclaiming. And it's reclaiming by making things personal and meaningful. And as soon as you go, this is exactly representative of my person, it doesn't matter if it's perfect, it doesn't matter if it's polished, it doesn't matter if it's got funeral directors in suits or not, it's meaningful and that will serve your grief better than a two-hour ceremony where someone who you don't know is saying words you haven't even approved.
0: This is a classic tale of how Churchill fellowships work. Not only did Rebecca get to travel to learn new practices and then bring them home, but she's now focused on spreading the word. And like so many other fellows, she's not content with keeping all these new ideas to herself. So looking ahead, what are your aspirations? What are your hopes for the future of funeral practices in Australia? Rebecca, how would you like to continue to make a difference in this area?
1: Well, in the interests of making a difference, we've actually formed a charity called the Australian Home Funeral Alliance. And we are in the process of writing an educational workshop and we would love people who know how to find funding to help us find funding to roll that out across Australia. What we would like to do is create a series of death care leaders across Australia so that in every state or territory, if someone wants a home funeral, there's not just our website that people can go to for information, but there's actually people who can disseminate information and assist.
0: Your title page on the Churchill Fellowship website says you love, quote, promoting good, honest conversations about the end of our lives it can be a tough subject to broach but it is so important to talk about it Rebecca Lyons thank you for such a good honest and absolutely fascinating conversation today thank you well that was trailblazer and end of life doula Rebecca Lyons with a fascinating story so how's your story going Are there skills or is there knowledge you could gain overseas that you might find difficult or even impossible to get here in Australia? If so, a Churchill Fellowship might be just for you. You can learn more at the Churchill Trust website, churchilltrust.com.au. I'm Adam Spencer and you've been listening to the Churchill Collective podcast. You can follow the Churchill Collective free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Churchill Collective is produced by the good people at Sound Cartel for the Winston Churchill Trust.